Amen. You can grab a seat. Glad you're here. My name's Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope Church, and today we are going to finish what turned into a pretty lengthy uh, sermon series in the Psalms. We're going to be in Psalm 61, so you can turn or tap your way there if you have a copy of the Scriptures. If not, please don't panic. We'll put those words on the screen for you, and we'd love to give you a copy of the Scriptures in a modern English translation uh, on your way out. That'd be an honor. So we've been in the Psalms, we've been studying and looking through, trying to figure out kind of what are some good access points to this massive, beautiful, intimidating kind of piece of Scripture. I hope that you've benefited from it. I certainly have. Part of the reason that we do such a long series in the Psalms is because, you know, I'm a selfish guy and I like being in the Psalms, so we're going to do it. Uh, And, I, I, you know, it's kind of hard to think that I'm doing you a disservice by getting you into the the church's prayer book. Thousands of years we've been singing and praying these prayers. Psalm 61 in particular, we kind of are, are picking as, as our one for today because we're finishing the summer. We're kicking off next week with our fall kickoff. We got the cool bridge event. We got the cool student event. We've got our prayer retreat. Happens this coming Saturday. There's big stuff happening. And as I think about Hope Church, we're eight years in. Uh, we've got kind of a rhythm. There's stuff. There's stuff that has to happen, that will happen, that's going to happen. It takes a lot of energy. People jump in. But I don't know. Are, are you around enough to kind of feel the ebb and flow of that? There's a lot, and it requires a lot, and you do it. There's deliverables. We make them happen. But what's the, what's the tax on you? Uh, I think if you've studied your own soul, if you are a believer and have been trying to walk this Christian walk for a period of time, you see that there's, a, there's an ebb and a flow, there's an up and a down. Like There's things that you'll get excited about and do, but you don't necessarily go about them the right way. And so it doesn't take long before you, you kind of come out the other side of that exhausted, apathetic, hiding. Shouldn't it be more normal to both... Find a great deal of joy and contentment in your faith and be able to put out a lot of uh, energy, a lot of sacrifice, a lot of work in the faith. Why is it that we kind of have a break between those two things? It's like it's either discipleship or evangelism. Why isn't there both happening at the same time? Christianity, we've kind of got like a fad diet sort of a system. Fad diets where you just say, like, you know, I only eat gummy bears, but I can eat all the gummy bears I want, and then you lose weight for a minute, and then, of course, you eat a piece of bread or something, and all of a sudden it all comes back. I just Googled crazy fad diets historically. There's been some great ones. In the 20s, Lucky Strike, the cigarette company, had a whole marketing campaign about how you should reach for a cigarette rather than a sweet. I don't know. French people are thin. There's, like, there's got to be something to... This idea of, you know, you're, you're obviously you're trading, you know, one version of health for another or one version of unhealth for another. But I don't know. People probably did lose weight. But it, it, at what cost? You know, there was one and I, I thought this was like a joke, but it actually has happened. There's medical cases of people eating tapeworm eggs in the hopes that that parasite will live in their intestines and eat their food for them so that they can get the experience of eating and still lose weight. It seems like kind of a symbiotic relationship. Uh, But, of course, you can ask a doctor. Probably not the greatest idea. I think in Christianity, we kind of have this idea 
There's a certain sort of exterior that we want to maintain, and it requires a certain amount of output. All right, that's fine. If there's something coming in, if you've established a healthy diet. So this, this psalm, Psalm 61, 8, ends with verse 8, and it says, So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. That's what we're looking for. Did you see the both and there? It says so, and it's verse 8. It's the last verse of the psalm. So it's connecting back to seven verses that are going to inform this conclusion. But look at this final state. This is a person who is ever singing praises to his name. He's got that piece figured out. He's always doing that. And he is, has this continuing action as I perform my vows day after day. He's got it all. There's some version of Christianity, there's some version of health that actually works. We talk to our daughters about that a lot because I don't want them to have weird eating complexes. I don't want them having weird body image issues, but I don't also want them having weird eating complexes. Like, God has made your body to work. There is a right amount to eat that is both satisfying and healthy. There is a way to live the Christian life that does not require you to supplement with some kind of secret sin. There is a way to live the Christian life that allows it to be like all that you do, not just a Sunday morning kind of a thing. There's a version of this that is not excruciating without any kind of reward. There's a version of this that is both very soul-filling and active at the same time. And we got to get there. I think it's a beautiful bow to put on this whole summer and a great way to launch us into the next step. So let's read it together. Psalm 61 begins, Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings, Selah. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. Seems like a weird sort of three verse, two verse set there, but we'll get into it. And then verse eight. So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. So this psalm starts with a faintness. The so will I ever sing praises and perform my vows day after day is a conclusion. It's an ending of the process. But the beginning of the process, the psalm begins with a faintness. Calling to the Lord when my heart is faint. So let's begin that way. What is your faintness? That's going to be the the first point today is finding out your faintness. What's going on in your life that is hard right now? What's the wound that needs surgery? What is difficult for you? I think the first thing that we sort of think of is tragedy. That word faintness, if you kind of look in the other places that talk about that same thing throughout the Psalms, there's one that's Psalm 102. I just encourage it to you. It's not like light reading or happy reading. But if you are feeling tragedy, it's going to look like your life. 
in there he says, for my bones pass away like smoke. My bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and has withered. I forget to eat my bread. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. There's a faintness that comes when tragedy strikes. When something really hard has happened or is going to happen. I mean, it's just the longer you live, the more you start hearing these stories and they come like closer to home. They're not just things that could happen or on like some sort of national news site. There's something that gets on your Facebook world because they're that close to you. Or maybe there's something that gets texted to you because it's that close to you. We talked, I got to do the student retreat for ICS this past week. So speaking to high schoolers a couple of times. And we talked about how love is hard because the more people you love, the more your scope for tragedy gets bigger. There's a good quote. When you have more than one kid, you have now decided that in your life, you are only ever going to be as happy as your least happy child. Have you heard that? Kind of makes sense. Circle up at the end of the day with your, your wife or your spouse and you say, okay, you know, you do the assessment. How are we doing? You end up spending your time talking about the least happy child. That is now the ceiling for your own joy. That's just how love works. You weep with those that weep. Well, we're supposed to be loving more and more and more and more. You are going to have this happen. It's going to be tragedy that will be directly related to you or you're going to open your scope up and tragedy is going to happen to people that you care about. When it does, it's exhausting. It dries up your strength like smoke. Your bones burn like a furnace. That is a faintness. Another faintness that I don't know how often we talk about is just temptation. When you resist temptation, you get exhausted. A lot of us don't really worry about it. We just give in to temptation. But if you actually have something that you're working against, the Lord has put in your life a conviction. Somebody has spoken on, somebody has challenged you about, some awful sort of uh, reveal has taken place. You've now got something that has to change from an addiction background, from just a living life background. Maybe it's anger, maybe it's lust. You've got something that you know God hates and when you get back into that moment of like, no, let's do this again. I'm, I'm back. Let's go, Lord. I'm ready. Let's, let's live this life. Then you decide you're going to, of course, also resist that temptation. You're going to get faint. Actually resisting temptation is one of the most exhausting things I can think of. C.S. Lewis wrote this book. It's called The Pilgrim's Regress. It's kind of a version of Pilgrim's Progress. And in it, the good guy, after his salvation moment, so like he's got the Holy Spirit, he's trying to like walk back to heaven. This is like the, the, the big kind of concluding part of the story. He's almost done. He's almost home. And yet he sees this temptation towards sexual lust. And that sexual lust temptation is so agonizing that what he does is he, he says no, but then of course he still wants it. And so he goes into his head and just starts to compose this poem. Now, it's a very special kind of person who says, what can I do to get through this? Ha ha, I shall compose a poem. Not many of us do that. Maybe we'd be more healthy if we were. But anyway, that's what he does. And, and he uses this sort of process as a way to put into his head exactly why he's not going to do this. 
And he finishes, and he says, but, and by the time he had reached the final word of the poem, the witch, which is representative of the adulterous woman in the Proverbs, the, the, the person who represents your temptation was gone. But he had never in his life felt more weary. For a while, the purpose of his pilgrimage woke no desire in him. Have you felt that? Have you become faint because you've been resisting temptation? And you did. You resisted. But you just dry as a bone afterward. If you haven't, let me encourage you to resist more temptation. (laughs) I mean, that's kind of a joke, but I mean it. It's exhausting. Another thing that can bring about your faintness is other people, other Christians. God has called you to live in contact with other believers. We talk about it a lot, but I think it's relevant. He always says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, connected to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the hard part. No, let's read another Bible study. You know, let's get together and just talk together about our relationship with the Lord. You know, let's do this part where we're going to just close our eyes and sing. And it's just us and him. Woo. Okay, now care about this idiot for months. Hmm. Love this horrible person. Or just as realistic. Allow yourself to be loved by this other person. And we all realize how troubling that is because how do you keep the mask on? You know, how do you maintain the right angle for that person to seem impressive for a long period of time? It's not possible. So it's going to require humility. What's more bitter than that drink? Living together as Christians is exhausting in that way. Christ says, pay attention to yourself. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Have you ever lost sleep because the next day you're going to have a conversation with another believer because you're going to rebuke their sin? It's exhausting. If he repents, forgive him. Is anybody young enough to think forgiveness happens like one time? Don't you know forgiveness is like this regular thing you have to do for years? where you have to keep drinking the pain of what somebody else did to you. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times and and says, I repent, you must forgive him. Exhausting. And what's part of what makes that so difficult? Well, because we're all so proud. The passage that we've been, I've been thinking about, talked about at the retreat thing, we talked about some in Colorado City, is this, this beautiful, awful, severe picture of us that comes from Jesus. When he says, uh, there's these two men that are praying, the Pharisee and the tax collector, and they're at the temple and they're praying. One of them goes home justified, and you think it's going to be the Pharisee, but it's actually the tax collector. And, and the Pharisee is praying. He's doing godly things in a way that God hates. But this is what he says. See if you can see yourself. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Standing alone. 
What does pride do? It isolates you. You become totally self-involved. Every other human on the planet is just a competitor. A competitor you've already beaten and you can pat yourself on the back for, like these other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. Or competitors you have yet to master, and oh, you hate them too. Do you see? It's so exhausting to be proud. It's so lonely. It's so difficult to love other Christians when you are proud. But we're called to. I tried to cast this vision for those high schoolers, and I said, like, remember what it's like to walk through the hallways. And, of course, they've already started school. They've got it. But for you, think about for a second what it's like to walk through the hallway. Maybe you experienced it this morning when you came in in the front and you walked down that hallway into this room. But remember being in high school and walking the halls. And as you're walking the halls, you've got eyes that are only scoping for the couple of people that are going to make your day better. You're looking for the couple of people that are going to make you laugh or that you can make laugh. The couple of people that are safe. And why is that? Well, partially because you've got this huge gap. You've got a huge need. You're coming in with a ton of insecurity. And so you're looking for the couple of people that are going to pour into your bucket. Make things okay. The people who are going to pat you on the back because they're at the same level as you in this massive pride competition with everybody else. Or the people that you've already sort of decided that you're going to kind of have each other's back in this awful competition with the rest of the world. The people that have been, for some reason, just echo of the Lord's original creation, for some reason have become this sort of band-aid for you together and you're both trying to deal with all the anxiety and fear that you have in your life because of sin. Ah, it seems harsh. I don't know that any of that is unbiblical. I think that's exactly how the Bible would describe us. Imagine the difference if this psalm actually took place, the faintness in you began to lessen, and you actually had something to give to other people. Imagine walking that same walk, but now, instead of intense need and fear and looking for the couple of safe people that you can go and be with, you walk through the world filled with a confidence and love, not from pride based on who you are, but given to you based on a confidence in the gospel. That means that as you walk through the world, you've got something to give to other people. Oh my gosh, there's so many millions of ways to twist this up, but just take it in its most pure form. Can you imagine what our world would be like? Our school would be like if there were several Christians that began to do that, but of course, our church would be like if there were several Christians who were willing to do that. Man, we're faint. How do we, how do we stop this? How do we change? Where do we go? Well, the psalmist is clear. We go to him. Now, I hope you understand your own heart enough to realize that if you are proud, that's the last thing you're going to want to do. But it's the only solution. You've got to go to him. That's what the psalmist does. He begins, uh, you know, he talks about his faintness, and he says in verse 2, the second piece, Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. It's right there. The only way any of this is going to land is if that pride begins to lessen, is if you can open your eyes enough. Pride makes you blind. But if you could open like your eye enough, enough scale was pulled back so that you could just get a glimmer of a holy God who's not you and is higher than you. 
That's a bitter drink to drink. But if you'll drink it, then all the rest of this falls into place. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. Out of the reach of your enemies, yeah, there's, there's a faintness that comes from all of those enemies that are around us. If you try to do anything in this world, if you try to bring about gospel change in any way, you're going to find enemies really quickly, internal, external, ones that should have your back and you're pulling knives out, internal, external. You're going to find a lot of enemies. They're really there. It's not just your pride. But, but out of the reach of these enemies, this person is put because he's trusting in this, this, high, this high shelter. I, I don't know that we can really capture this in the same way for us. Like a really safe place is like a you know, panic room or something. Something like low, below ground that can stop nuclear, you know, whatever. Back in these days, the attack was going to come. And if you could get up, you get into a tower. There's stories about that. Throughout the Old Testament, of the people getting into the tower in order to kind of be safe and away from the bad guys. There's so many sieges that take place because you can't just go over a wall. And you're just going to have to cut them off and make it like starve them out. It's an effective strategy. You're above the spear, and at some point, you're above the arrows. Well, what are you going to do? That's what this guy is calling on. He's calling on that imagery, that idea that if I will humble myself and submit to God, He can get me high. He can get me safe. He can get me out of the mess that I've made for myself or the mess that's kind of bubbling up around me. But again, that first step is that humility. Rachel and I have been watching a lot of Shark Tank. Shark Tank and Survivor. I'm not proud of it, but if one of those shows is on, like, that's it. It's just like hypnotic. I can't not finish it. So we, we've been watching. It's on Hulu now. And then, okay, here we go. You know, and you just start going back further and further. And you don't really even know what year it is anymore, but you're watching these pitches take place. And one uh, kind of regular thing that'll happen is somebody will come in and they've got a, what could be a good idea. If it's a bad idea, they're just all out and kick them away. If it's a great idea, you know, they're all bidding and they're trying to just give money to this very impressive entrepreneur. But there's a version, there are some pitches where people have a pretty good idea, but they are terrible business people. And so the sharks are asking them all these questions. Why didn't you do this? Why did you do that? And then they say, okay, but how much debt have you taken on? And they'll go like, well, this. And everybody goes, oh, why would you do that? You've made such terrible decisions. And so when it comes time for the offer, they'll say, all right, I'll give you the 200000 but I want 50% of the company. Staggering. And then they'll say, because you need adult supervision. What are they saying? I'm going to give you money, but I'm going to take a lot because you're just, you're doing a terrible job here. Somebody else is going to need to step in. You're going to need new management. If you've got faintness in your world, what the psalmist is doing is saying what every human should say every moment of every day. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. And you just sit there as the viewer and you hope that those terrible business people will accept that offer. Because 50% of a company that somebody like those, you know, good business people are running is so much more than 100% of a terrible idea. 
Oh, man, if you would just let the rock be higher than you. Then, then it's, not, it's not from a remedial perspective. I mean, from a Shark Tank idea, it is. You know, like, all right, you're an idiot. You've stumbled on this patent, and I can't beat you there. But if I'll just take over, then I can make it work and, you know, fire you. But within the gospel, what he's doing, of course, yeah, he's going to run things. He's the one that's actually good at this. But also, he is coming in not because he's going to profit, but because he loves you. And you see that. That's, it's, it's a little bit difficult. Again, you kind of get into sort of psalm speech as you're reading these things. Maybe you've got them on a daily where you're going through a psalm a day. And, you know, you just kind of see some of these words over and over again. And so you just sort of glaze over. But I would encourage you to look at the, the way that he's talking in the sort of progression. He starts by talking about a rock, but then he talks about a strong tower. Then he talks about a tent, and then he talks about the refuge of being under someone's wings. And this guy, Derek Kinder, who we talked about a couple of times, he's a great commentator on the, psalmist, on the Psalms, he says, God's safekeeping is viewed here in increasingly personal terms. The aloof ruggedness of the high crag of verse 2, the rock, gives place to the purpose-built tower of verse 3. And this, in turn, to the hospitality of the frail tent. You're actually brought into somebody's personal tent with its implication of safety among friends. And finally, the affectionate parental shelter symbolized by thy wings. Do you see? All of those places are safe, but there is a progressive closeness That's what the psalmist is being drawn into. God's not just there to protect him. God's there for him. He's not just coming to solve your problems. He's coming to love you. Jesus, as he is looking out over Jerusalem, says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you're the city. You keep killing the prophets and stoning those who are sent to you. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you were not willing. Oh, man. You see the pride, but you also see the love. You understand that if you would just look up, if you would just make that small yes, he would just love to come in and be with you. That picture in, the, in Revelation of the Lord, standing at the door and knocking. You don't have to pay him. You don't have to convince him. You don't have to show up on Shark Tank and impress him. Just open the door. Just realize that you want to open the door, that you want him. And he comes in, he eats with you. And uh, Psalm 61, verse 5, and he kind of comes to this praise moment. And he says, for you, O God, have heard my vows. You've given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Now, I think for us, we would end the psalm there. But the Bible has a bigger understanding of humanity and a bigger understanding of how we relate to God than we do. Because he starts talking now about the king. It says in verses 6 through 8, Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day by day. It's not just his relationship to the Lord. He is also praying for this king. Now, he understood that a great deal of his life is going to be influenced by the godliness or unholiness, the the faithfulness or idolatry of the king. We don't really access that. I don't have a king. 
priesthood of all believers, baby. I walk right into the throne room. I speak to God. I don't need you. Word. But you do have a king. You are part of a body. It's just in Christ, it's now been redeemed. It's now Christ as that king. I need you to recognize that so that you can access how all this works. How would you believe that God actually does want to draw you together like a hen gathering her brood? Why would you think that you could not? I don't know what you do in a tent to get, gain access. Hello, you know, what you can't knock. But how would you think that he would open the flap and say, come on? You're accepted by your king. The psalmist is praying this, but even they understood as David and the, the, the covenants given to David were giving this very clear and obvious that there would be a king to come. And this king to come was going to be more than human. Greater than just a king. Read Psalm 2 today. Oh, this was a psalm of coronation. They sang this about kings. Yeah, read Psalm 2 and tell me if they were just thinking about a guy. Or if they weren't looking forward to something greater. They were thinking there would be coming someone greater. We, now looking back through the lens of the New Testament, understand that, of course, this Jesus is God. This Jesus became our king. It says in Ephesians 2, 5 and 6, it's talking about how we were dead in our our trespasses and our sin, but God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. He's raised us up with him and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, up high in the safe with him. Do you see it? And how does it take place? In him. This is your king and you're taken by this king up to be with him. And He's such a good king. Look at his reign. It says in Revelation 22, no longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They'll see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more, and they will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Do you see your king? Let's put it all together. Is He your king? It's going to take a little humility here. Are you faint? You need a king. Is this your king? You don't need just an iron scepter to come in and crush everything. You need love. You need a king like Solomon. Song of Solomon. Read Psalm 2, then read Song of Solomon. You need love. You need this one who comes in and makes all things new because he loves you. And if you accept that. If you live in that, you watch. He's going to point out a lot of stuff. There's work to be done. But he is going to walk through that with you, empowering you in it to to resist that temptation. To start trying to melt the iceberg of bitterness you've let grow up in your heart towards other people. To kill that pride. To make you effective and actually loving, not just your family, but maybe even 10 or 20 or 50 people beyond your family. There's so much. There's so much to do. There's so much fruit. There's so much growth. But only if you're plugged into that vine. 
Are you? Have you? Let's pray. Lord and Heavenly Father, we ask that you would teach us as we study this psalm and think about the glory of the gospel of a Christ who was holy and perfect and everything was great, and yet he came to be with us, to take our sin upon himself, and then to die for us. Lord, that that love would melt our hearts. That this morning, the faintness that comes as we consider again trying to live with a passionate Christian set of values, that we we would consider what would it be like for me to actually launch out hard with Hope Church on September 11th? What would that actually look like? And as we get daunted by that picture, Father, teach us to go back to the rock that is higher than I. Let us cry out to you, our strong tower, the tent that you're going to bring us into, Lord, the wings that you wrap around us. Give us the humility to cry out for that love and then to live in it day by day. We love you, sir. We pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.